0: Twenty-seven Exodus 27, beginning at verse 9. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long, and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen, with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases, and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall be a hundred cubits long, and is to have curtains with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases, And with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide. And have curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases. On the east end, toward the sunrise, the courtyard shall also be 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits long are to be on one side of the entrance. With three posts and three bases. And curtains 15 cubits long are to be on the other side. With three posts and three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, with four posts and four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to have silver bands and hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard shall be 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide, with curtains of finely twisted linen 5 cubits high with bronze bases. All the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle, whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for it and those for the courtyard, are to be in bronze. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To start off, I I I need to start with a mistake that I made last week. Um, I told you something that wasn't true. And I apologize for that and want to make it clear that if I say something that is not true, then I should be called to account for it. And nobody called me to account. I actually discovered it on my own, but I'm still accountable to you. And especially because it's from God's word, I want to make sure that we're clear about things. Last week, I told you, if you remember, when we were talking about the altar, that um, when someone would bring an offering in through what part of the, how would they come in? The gate. When they would bring an offering through the gate, the lamb, then the lamb, they would meet with the priest. The priest would put his hand upon the lamb and upon the person making the offering so that those sins might be uh, put upon the lamb, and then the lamb would be sacrificed. But if you remember, I said to you that the priest sacrificed the lamb. Did anyone know that I was wrong? The priest didn't. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning of verse 6. If you look in Leviticus chapter 1, you're going to see the rituals for an offering being made. And what you will see there is the priest did not make the, uh, did not kill the lamb, did not slaughter the lamb. The person themselves who was making the offering himself slaughtered the lamb. And the reason that I bring this up is because, A, it's important, because it means, in essence, the death of the Lamb is at the hands of the one who sinned. That's a pretty powerful picture, first of all. And second of all, if I see something that is not of the Word of God, then that's a problem. And if that ever happens and you do discover it, which you didn't on this time, shame on you, uh, hold me account. Hold me accountable. I need to be held to account that's part of what the elders are responsible for. But it's also something that I, I want to teach what is truly the Word of God. And if it's not the Word of God, then I don't want to teach it. So just making that clear, that's an important um, important distinction for me to make. And, and I wanted to do that right from the beginning here today. But now we get to this courtyard. And we look at this courtyard, and this courtyard uh, is... is um, it's, it's an important part of worship for the people of Israel because it is the common place of worship. This is something, this is the place where everybody could come. And it's funny because there are commentators who will disagree on who would come into the courtyard. Some would say only men. But there are other commentators who say, no, families would come. So we're not exactly sure how that all works. But we do know that it was the place where, at the very least, more people than just the priests were welcome to come and be a part of the worship. And God is making a statement here in Exodus about how he sees things, even in the courtyard. Now, quickly, let's step back a couple weeks if you remember me talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was made out of two things. It was made out of, first of all, the wood was acacia wood. What was the second material that it was used to build the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember? It was gold. Pure gold. It was completely covered with gold. So in the Holy of Holies, the one piece of furniture there that was not made of acacia wood, or at least was partially made of acacia wood, was covered in pure gold. And if you remember Pastor Will, the next week, he talked about the lampstands, the lampstand and the other furniture in the holy place. And if that was, it, it was made of acacia wood, if it was made with any metal, what metal was that? Gold. Holy place. And holy of holies, gold. But then you get further out. Then you get the great sea, the wash basin, and you get the altar. What do we see there? Materials. Silver and bronze. And what do we see here in the courtyard? All the standards and all the post holders and everything like that, the hooks. Silver and bronze. God's saying something there he's saying something actually about who he is and what his presence is like because gold is more valuable than silver and it is also something that it it, it carries more beauty and it is something that symbolizes a deeper purity so when God made the, or called the people to build the Holy of Holies and all the furniture inside the Holy of Holies and most holy place, inside the tabernacle tent itself. He was saying, when you get this close to me, it's got to be pure. It's got to be perfect. But then there's outwards, you have these other metals. And it's symbolic of even the actual, um, action of worship. Because remember, when you would come to the tabernacle, you would come with a sheep. Why why would you have that sheep to sacrifice for your sin? So you are approaching the tabernacle carrying with you your sin. Well, since that's the case on the outer part, the purity is not as necessary because you haven't yet come into the close, intimate presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So you approach the gate, not as pure. Get in the gate, make the sacrifice, what would happen? Your sins would be taken away from you. What are you now that you weren't before? Pure and holy. So you can approach the tent come into the place now only the priests could do that and only the high priest once a year could enter into the holy of holies so there is certainly different levels of holiness within the tabernacle that god demanded and he shows that to us even in the materials that he asked his people to use but he also is saying something in this courtyard about how he sees his people Think about the courtyard, it's, it's, it's a tent, well not a tent, it's a bunch of curtains, and I'm sure that there were probably, like I could just see like a little six-year-old boy, probably a DeWitt kid, would go and peek like through the little crack in the curtain and try to see what was going on in there. But at the very least, the curtain of the courtyard would insulate worship from people on the outside from them looking in. Now, the only people who could actually come into the courtyard were Jews. This is the only ones allowed. So Jews were the ones who could see this. Anyone else wouldn't know what was going on inside the courtyard. So there's this idea of a separation. What goes on within the courtyard and the worship of God is a mystery unknown to people outside. In this, God is saying something about setting his people apart. He's saying, you're unique. This courtyard is only for you. These Levitical and Deuteronomistic laws are only for you. And the reason they are only for you is to set you up uniquely in the world as my people dietary laws i only want you to to eat certain things why because it's unique and it's different from those people around you i only want you i want you to be clean in ceremonially in some certain ways why because other people don't do that i want to set you apart i want you to be circumcised other people don't do that i'm calling you to Why? Because it sets you apart. God was making all these commands, including how the courtyard was isolated from the world around it. He was setting his people apart and saying, there's something unique about you. But the problem is, is they messed that up over and over and over again. They did something that was an abomination, in fact, in the eyes of God. Instead of themselves being set apart, what did they do? They syncretized their lives with the people around them. Syncretized means this. When you're with somebody, instead of them doing what you do, you do what they're doing. They lived with people around them, other tribes, other nations. And they took on their religious observance. We know that. We hear especially in the book of Judges over and over again that there was this level of idolatry among the people. Why? They didn't live like a set-apart people when they were living in idolatry. Why? Because they were jumping into the religions of the other people and other tribes and other nations around them. They intermarried with them, and we've already talked about the challenge that that makes. If you marry someone else... All of a sudden, you have to, you, you take on some of their characteristics, some of the things that they do. Instead, and certainly, you may affect them in the same way. But I'll tell you what, I'm really glad that my wife has affected me more than I've affected were, her. She's the holy person, I'm the not-so-holy person. And it's been good for me to become more like she has, like I should be. That happened, but in the other way the people of Israel. Instead of them worshiping the Most High God in the ways that He called them to, they were worshiping other idols and doing other things and becoming less and less a set-apart people and more and more enmeshed in the culture in which they were living. Anybody know that challenge? In the world that we live in? It's a real thing, isn't it? Has anyone ever thought about how to, what does the New Testament say, live in the world but not of the world? Has anyone really struggled with that in their own life? Anyone? How do you do that? Because we live in a culture that can consume us, right? Every single one of you or almost all of you have phones in your pocket and how that enmeshes you with culture and access you to Facebook and all the different media out there. And you're going to go into stores or restaurants or whatever this week, places of business. And there are certainly places in those restaurants or stores and people in those restaurants or stores that are not holy. They're not pure gold. They're not even bronze. They're aluminum foil because they don't want to be holy like God is holy. You're going to be in places of work where your coworkers are going to say and do things that are directly antithetical to what God calls you to do as an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, you and I are called to live as a Christian in those contexts, and we know that that can be hard. Be around a lot of people who swear for a couple weeks and see if your language doesn't change. I remember like my first two weeks of college. I think I invented swear words those first couple weeks. We were with a bunch of guys. We were playing cards and doing sports all the time. My language just changed in a moment. Why? Because I was surrounded by it, and I got enmeshed in it, trying to live out faith in a culture which does not express faith is a very challenging and difficult thing. And there's a couple ways that we can address that. And the first thing that we could do is insulate ourselves. You can insulate yourself from culture. You can do only Christian things. You can go to your Christian school you can go to your Christian church. You can be a part of Christian friendships, hang out with only Christian people, watch Christian music uh, movies, listen to Christian music, you can drink your Christian energy drinks, eat your eat your Christian candy and wear your Christian flip-flops. And you laugh. But all of those things actually exist. There's a Christian energy drink. I think it's called Trinity. You can drink a Christian energy drink. You can have Christian candy. It's called Testaments. You think I'm kidding. Doug Spoolstra sells them over at Sela stores. And you can have your Testaments and you can give them out. And they have a nice little Bible verse on them. Good thing, okay. And I, Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I'm just, let's, let's make a point here. And your flip-flops. There's actually a company that makes flip-flops that on the bottom of them, when you walk on the sand, they make an imprint of the cross. So uh, you're walking on the beach and you leave those footprints in the sand. Nice little Christian poem that the people who come behind you see Jesus walking in the sand. And we laugh. But it's a real thing. Why? Because we want to be holy. Right? We want to be holy. Right? We don't want to be polluted. We don't want to be sinful. And that's a good way to insulate yourself from unholy things. And, and I, in some ways I'm being facetious. But all of those things aren't bad things. Having Christian friendships. Certainly Christian school. Being a part of Christian groups. Having Christian friendships. Wonderful. Not sure about Christian candy and Christian flip-flops, but still. All of these things ain't bad things. But where within that is the Great Commission? Go out and preach my gospel to every creature. Go, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Go, and if we're going to go and preach the gospel, can we just hang around Christians? Certainly not. Then there's the opposite. The opposite end of the spectrum is to immerse yourself into culture and get be a, be salt and light within a particular culture. And in some ways, I think of you know the example of Triple X Church. If you know Triple X Church, it's in a, this, this really incredible ministry. And I'm I'm not indicting them here. I'm just I'm explaining, I'm trying to make a point here. They're a group that actually um gets booths at pornographic conventions for the industry and they sit there and they give out bibles and they meet and build relationships with porn stars producers and people who watch pornography a lot and they're in that culture but i got to imagine that that's a difficult thing sometimes to live within that culture and not be affected by it Now, I I know that this ministry, they've got a really good support system and really good things behind them to make sure that they don't get sucked into it. But still, it's got to be difficult. In fact, I remember a guy a number of years ago, he said that he wanted to bring the light and salt of Jesus into the music industry. So he became a Christian producer of secular music. And so he was producing um, secular artists but being a Christian within them. But he was completely immersed in that culture and didn't have the sort of support community and support system behind him. And I stopped, I heard uh, about him for about a year doing, doing some stuff within the secular music industry. But then I stopped hearing about him until about three or four years later when I heard that he is simply a music producer. He's not really even living out his faith anymore because he was so immersed it weakened his if we want to call it spiritual backbone so much that he couldn't stand anymore so so how do we walk that through how do we not get sucked in by one end or the other how do we engage in culture and at the same time see christian community that supports us how do we move through that It's difficult. I think of that for our high school seniors and those who are thinking about their next year going to college or university. What sort of college or university are you going to go to? Secular university? Do you feel strong enough to immerse yourself within that culture and to be salt and light within that culture? And certainly there are people within this community who have made that decision, some with a great amount of success, others with not so much success. They've been sucked in a little bit. And the opposite extreme is to go to a Christian college. And I'm not saying that all Christian colleges are perfect. And of course, we have a, a horrible example of that this past week and some of the difficulties uh, that have gone on at Seattle Pacific University with the shooting there. And we give, give God praise that Emma, Emma's fine and so is um, an eagle. Can't remember her first name. Stephanie. Stephanie Nagel. Sorry about that. Stephanie Knoll. Oh gracious. I'm losing it. Anyway. Both those kids are fine. But we hear that even on Christian campuses. There's darkness there. There's brokenness there. But there is this idea of. You want to go to a Christian college. Because you want to build yourself up. You don't want to be sucked into. A lot of the things that are on. Secular universities. And and there's this isolation. Or insulation idea. Now. In some Christian college context, that's stronger than others. But certainly, that's a difficult decision. Which way do you walk? Which way do you go? Should I insulate? Should I engage? Should I try to navigate the center of the road? What does it mean that I'm supposed to do here in order to worship God in holiness and yet at the same time fulfill the Great Commission, proclaim His name to the world around me? And as we look back at the courtyard, we understand a little bit more how to do that. You need to walk with me a little bit here, because you need to understand some things. We think of Israel in the wilderness 40 years, right? And oftentimes we think of this group of people just with nothing else around them, because it was wilderness. And it was. I've been to some of these places. It is a hard place to live. But you know what I found, and we found really quickly when we were in Israel? Even in these hard wilderness places, you know what happens? People still live there. There are people there who have been there literally thousands and thousands of years. And their ancestors would have been there when all the people of Israel were going through. So the people were not alone in the wilderness. And they would have had to have regular interaction with some of these tribes. Here's what I want you to imagine. Let's imagine the people are journeying, and they journey, because there's about a million people, uh, they're journeying slowly, and all of a sudden in the distance, they see this Bedouin camp, and this Bedouin who is off in the distance sees them coming, and he gets a little scared, but because he thinks he's going to take them over, they come up, and they camp, and they stop. Now, hospitality in this culture would say that you need to go out and greet someone who comes into your area. So the Bedouins would have sent somebody, a representative, and even invited some people to come into their tent. It was hospitality. It was the culture. There wouldn't have been a level of engagement. Now let's say that the nation of Israel in that spot stayed for a period of six, eight months, maybe a year. They would have had interaction with that Bedouin group over and over again. Here's what I mean. Let's say you see that's a herdsman and he has sheep. Do you need sheep? Well, of course you do. What do you need sheep for? Sacrifices? So you know that there's another guy in Israel that you buy your sheep from. But you know what? He's charging you X amount of dollars and you want to see if you can get a deal. So what do you do? You go over to the Bedouin and you say, I see you have sheep and some of them look very good can we make a deal why why do you want my sheep for sacrifice what do you mean sacrifice you sacrifice the sheep yeah we do why to our god he asked that we sacrifice sh- sheep for sins well, where does that happen in the tabernacle what's the tabernacle It's that place in the center of camp, walled off by curtains, and we do our worship there, and part of our worship is sacrifice. Well, what's the name of your God? Yahweh. Why do you worship Him like that? You can imagine in some of those interactions, in fact, a lot of them, that they would have had an opportunity to talk with others about who God is. But here's the thing. God didn't say, stay out there and keep on interacting with them. Because there was a rhythm. And the rhythm of sacrifice said, guess what? You need to take that sheep that you bought for a good deal and bring it back to the tabernacle. And you need to sacrifice it. And then when you sacrifice it, are you supposed to stay in the courtyard No, you're supposed to go back out. Where? Maybe you're supposed to go out and talk to that Bedouin again. There was this rhythm of worship, then engagement. Worship, then engagement. And oftentimes, as the people traveled through the wilderness, if they weren't commanded to go and attack, they engaged in relationship. Why? Because that was part of the culture. Hospitality, share a tent, get to know people. Now, in that, yes, God is calling them to be set apart. But you could still be set apart and build relationship if you are in the rhythm. The rhythm of community and then the rhythm of engagement. And God, in that rhythm, was put on display to the people of Aaron Israel. And the community was strengthened. Why was the community strengthened? Because when you were going out, when you came back, someone would talk to you about it. What's going on with that Bedouin? What's going on with, with his flocks? What sort of deal did you get? Do you think I can get the same deal? But the community at least was strengthened because you knew God's name was being going out, but you had to make sure that that name was represented correct, correctly. Correctly. And for us, as we think about this and how we engage in the culture around us, understand this. We're in that same rhythm if we engage in it. There is this compulsion oftentimes. Get into the isolated Christian community. Why? Because it's holy. And it's hard to go out there and proclaim Jesus. It's hard sometimes to build relationships with people because we don't know what they're going to say. We're afraid we're going to offend them. We're afraid that somebody is going to say to us, I don't want anything to do with your God. I don't want anything to do with you Christian." But when we go with the community, something happens. We're not going alone. Maybe you're in this place. You know God has called you to speak to someone who doesn't know about Jesus. You know that the Spirit has put it on your heart to pray for, to talk with, to encourage, to interact with that person. But you haven't done it to the point of sharing the truth of the hope that you have in Christ. You're not, you're just talking about life. You're talking about your kids. You're talking about your your marriage or whatever. You're talking about things, but you're intentionally staying away from things of faith. I'm challenging you. Go and speak of things of faith. Why? Because you're not doing it on your own. You're doing it with this room behind you. You're doing it with the people at first service behind you. You are doing it with the people who watch us online and who are a part of our community. Why? Because that's what our community does. It strengthens us and equips us to go out and to proclaim, as we say in our, our uh, uh, vision statement, to go to see a people engaging with the world around them, putting Christ on display. You go with the community supporting you and praying for you. We did that this morning for Paisley. Paisley's not on her own. She doesn't live life on her own. She lives life with the community. Go and be encouraged because as you engage in the culture, engage in the world, engage in places where there is darkness, you don't just bring your light and you don't just bring the light of Christ. You bring the light of Christ with the whole community bringing it along with you and shining their light through you that's why we go through this regular rhythm don't go out there and stay don't come in here and stay gain the rhythm and here's the challenge you know if i have somebody who comes up and says says to me can i be a christian and not go to church what do i have to say to him what do i say to him yes or no Can you be a Christian and not go to church? Because being a Christian is dependent upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Do I have to say, you know, if they say, if I don't read my Bible, am I a Christian? What do I have to say? What do I have to say? What if I say, what if they ask me, do I have to be a Christian and have a lot of Christian friends? What do I say? You don't need to have Christian friends in order to be a Christian. But you know what happens when we do have those things, when we're regularly coming to worship, when we're regularly engaged in God's word, and we're regularly engaged in Christian, Christian relationships? It encourages and strengthens us and equips us to be able to go out. I want to see you here every week, not just because it keeps attendance up, folks, but because it equips and encourages you to be able to go out from this place. And I don't want you to stay here. I got work to do. Leave me alone sometimes, all right? I don't want you here all the time because you shouldn't be here all the time. You should be out and going and proclaiming the name of Jesus, sometimes into risky, dark, and challenging places, like your next-door neighbor's home, like your workplace, like your family reunions, anywhere that God calls you. Because how will they know about the gate unless there is someone to tell them? And how can we tell them unless we have a community that prays for, encourages, and teaches so that we may speak? We have to go out. But we don't go out on our own. We go with the community. And let me tell you about an idea that we have for this fall to strengthen and support that community. We, we live in a fractured world, right? I mean, we, we can say that. There's a lot going on. How many of you are sick of driving your kids around from one place to the next to the next? You catch dinner at the drive-thru because that's all you have time for. How many of you are in that spot a couple days a week? There's a lot of you. We want to help you with that, at least on some level. Because we think that that's a bad thing having a fractured community a fractured family isn't a good thing here's what we're our our idea is this fall on wednesdays two times a month every single youth ministry group will meet here that night so junior high high school gems cadets And other ministries as well. So there might be a women's group. There might be a parenting group. There might be a men's Bible study. There might be a prayer group going on. I think we're going to get a walking group. We might get a biking group. I think we're going to get a unicycle group. It's some exciting things going on here. Nick wants puppets. I think puppets is something he's really excited about. We have some things that we want to do. Because we want families to be together. And we want to be together as a family. And we're going to, on the second Wednesday of the month, give you a night off from cooking. We're going to have dinner here and we're going to make it. we got some people who are willing to step up to the plate and take care of that. So you can come and you can get dinner and hang out. And what happens when you hang out at dinner? You're going to meet new people, I think. Don't sit at the same table with the people that you always sit at. Sit with some new people. And what are you going to do as you sit at a table with some new people? So you're going to talk, right? So you're going to get to know. You're going to build community. Great. Good. And then Gems is going to go do Gems things. Cadets is going to go do cadet things. Middle school, high school, unicycle group, puppetry people. They're all going to go to their things and do their stuff. And then on the fourth Wednesdays of the month, instead of eating food together first, we're going to worship together first. So we're going to hang out in here, and we may have a youth praise band. We may have an adult praise band. We may have a group of singing bears come in. Who knows how it's going to work? And we're going to bring, we're going to have a worship time together in here. And then Gems is going to go to do Gems things. Cadets going to go do cadet things. And then on the other Wednesdays of the month, just the high school group is going to meet. And we want to do that because we want to see community built. But here's something else. You're not the only people who are sick of driving from kids' activity to kids' activity to drive through to other stuff. You all know people who do the exact same thing and who don't come to church. Now imagine if you were to say to them, Guess what? I'm going to give you a break one night a week. Bring your whole family. We got free food. Come and eat. And you know what? I'll go with you, and we'll hang at the table, and we'll sit and talk together. What's going to happen? Engagement. So while we're building community, that part that helps us to do engagement, we're engaging. Instead of it being go, 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 it's bringing it Together. We really have a desire to equip and encourage all of us to be able to engage. I really, I don't want to see just all river people here on Wednesday nights. If we feed all of Redlands, I don't know how we'll do that. We'll figure it out. Five loaves, two fish, we'll pull it off somehow. If we got to feed all of Redlands, but then we get to engage with them and build community and build relationship with them. God be praised. Who knows how that might happen? Because we don't want to just sit in the courtyard God says, get out of the courtyard. Go out there. Put me on display to the world. Because they need to know so that maybe, if I will it, they'll come to the gate one day. And they'll meet the one who's going to change everything. Let me pray for you. Pray for us as we seek to engage in that challenge. Lord God, thank you for the courtyard that brings us together in community, that engages us in worship, that equips us and encourages us towards the things of you, being obedient, proclaiming your name, showing love for you. But that also equips us to go. And when we go, Lord, and engage in this world to go and be in the world, but not of it, we go equipped and encouraged and taught by the community, supported by them. Lord, may we go together. May we understand that this is about us living life together as the body of Christ, equipped with different gifts, equipped with different abilities, and also different challenges. But we meet those challenges together, Father. It's the community you've given us. Thank you for this family. We can do this work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.